This morning we're up to Colossians 3, starting from verse 12. So we're going to read that together. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So if you can open your Bibles, get it up on your phone. The verses will be on the screen as well. And let's hear from God's Word together. Colossians 3, starting from verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, We thank you that you want to speak to us today through your spirit. Father, we ask that you would change us to be a community of love, a community of grace, and a community of peace, uh, so that we might reflect the Lord Jesus in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Catherine, my wife, and I, we're originally from the Blue Mountains. There's a few other mountains people out there, and we, we love it up there. Blue Mountains are just west of Sydney, an hour west of Sydney, and we love the bush, uh, we've got great memories of um, dating and going to lookouts and going on bushwalks and uh, seeing the waterfalls. I, I proposed to Catherine in Blue Mountains National Park up at Blackheath, and we love it up there. And we really love it up there in winter. You know, you go up to Katoomba and it's bitterly cold and you've got to put on your scarf and your beanie and your thermals and your gloves and your big puffer jacket. And, you know, you go to a, a lookout up there in the night and it's crystal clear. There's no light pollution from the city. You can see the beautiful stars. Or you go out in the bush and enjoy a campfire and you're all rugged up, all nice and warm in your winter clothes. But we also love the beach. And, you know, living in Newtown now where... Not like Matt and Kaz at Bondi, but we're a bit closer to the beach than we were in the mountains. Um, But I want you to imagine me rocking up to Tamarama Beach, wearing my winter clothes from the Blue Mountains, in my big puffer jacket in the heat of summer. That just doesn't really work, does it? Those clothes don't fit the situation. I've got to take off my winter clothes and put on my swimmers in the heat of summer to go enjoy the beach. Now, in this passage that we're looking at today, Paul gives us some fashion advice, and he uses the language of changing our wardrobe, changing clothes. He writes that we died with Christ, and so we take off our old clothes. We take off our old sinful nature. Just like winter jackets have no place at the beach in the heat of summer, our old sinful nature doesn't fit with our new identity in Christ. And that's what Arnaldo looked at last week, as he gave a brilliant message telling us to put sin to death. This week, we're going to look at what Paul wants us to put on. What is our new wardrobe? What is this new set of clothes consistent with our identity in Christ? So we're going to have a look through our wardrobe. We're going to try on our new clothes and see how they fit. And as we go through our wardrobe, we're going to see six items in there. We're going to see that we have a new identity as the people of God, a new character, a new command, 
a new principle, a new diet, and a new purpose. So that's what we're going to walk through together. So first, first of all, we have a new identity. As Paul begins the call to put on new clothes in verse 12, he makes some identity statements that form the foundation of his, his command. So first notice how he describes the Christian community in verse 12. He says, put on then as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The foundation of this new life in Christ is our identity in Christ. And he says three things. We are God's chosen people. He chose us not because we were great, not because we were important, not because we had anything to offer him, but because he loves us. Before God created the world, he had you in mind. You were in his heart when he created the world. He knew you. He had a plan for you. He chose you to be his before the creation of the world. Do you realize how precious you are to God? That you are his treasure, which he gave everything for so that you could be his. Second, we are holy. Now, you might not feel very holy this morning. I am certainly very aware of my own sin. But as the church, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus took off our old wardrobe. He took off our filthy rags and he gave us his clothes, his clean white robes. If you are united to Christ, you are perfect. You are holy in God's sight. And third, we are beloved. God loves us, church. Do you know that? That God loves you. You're not, you're not some naughty little child that God just kind of tolerates and wishes that he could get, you know, get rid of. He loves you. He cherishes you. He gave his one and only son to save you. Do you realize how greatly loved you are by God? If you're in Christ, this is your identity. God's chosen people, holy and beloved. Now, this means that the Christian life, it's not about performance. It's not about doing better or trying harder. You know, we don't pretty ourselves up, put on our makeup, iron our clothes, try and fix ourselves up for God to try and win his approval. God gives us a new wardrobe that fits our new identity. As Arnauta reminded us last week, we've got to look up and see our new identity in Christ. We've got to realize who we are in him. But Paul also, in verse 12, did you notice that little word then? Put on then, in verse 12. What he says about putting on the new wardrobe, it looks back to what he's just said in verse 11. He writes, Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Through the cross, Jesus not only reconciles us to God, but reconciles us to one another. God's taken us with all our differences and united us as one body. He's overcome not only racial diversity, but everything that separates us and drives us apart. Now, this isn't stripping us of our individuality. It's saying that what unites us now as the church is greater than what divides us. We are united by Jesus wherever we've come from. Our identity is in Christ. The church is open to everyone from every background, every walk of life. God has made a brand new humanity in Jesus, made up of people from every nation, every language under heaven. And this means that the wardrobe change that Paul is going to be teaching us about, it's not an individual thing. It's a community thing. There is a collective significance to the new self that transcends boundaries. This means that sanctification, becoming like Jesus, sanctification isn't a self-improvement project. 
Sanctification is a community project. So that's the first thing we see in our wardrobe. As God's people, we have a new identity in Christ, chosen, holy, beloved, united as one body. And our new wardrobe is tailor-made to fit this new identity. The second thing that we see is that we have a new character. So let's look at verse 12 together. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So these virtues, they're our new clothes. They're custom made by our creator with his label stitched into them. They're clothes that are fitting our new identity as God's people. This is what we put on. This is, these are the things that are to mark our lives as Christians. Compassion. We identify with and are concerned about the suffering of others. Kindness. We have a generous disposition. We're willing to meet the needs of other people. Humility. We consider the needs of others before our own. We bring ourselves down to joyfully serve. Meekness. We're not overly impressed with our own self-importance. We hold our strength loosely to serve other people. Patience. We're able to stay calm in the face of provocation or misfortune. Now, Jesus was the first one to wear this wardrobe. He wore it perfectly. He exemplified this way of life. And as we put these things on, as we put this on, we're putting on Christ. As we live this way, we are showing Jesus to the world. But I don't know about you, but I'm not naturally furnished with these virtues. If our family's running late, and Eva, my daughter, is refusing to put on her shoes and she just wants to keep playing with her doll's house and Reuben's walking over and pulling her hair and they start fighting and everything descends into mayhem. And then someone shows up at the door unexpectedly and we're trying to get it. I'm not naturally patient. I'm not naturally calm in the face of chaos. Even on the way here to church this morning, I was running a bit late and it just felt like I got every single red light on King Street. And I'm like, I'm about to preach on patience and like impatience is you know, welling up in my heart. You know, our old self is not compassionate. It's it's indifferent, not kind. We're stingy. We're not humble. We're proud. We think too highly of ourselves and we're impatient. The only reason we can have any of these virtues is because God gives them to us as a gift, as a new wardrobe from our Creator. They're evidence that God is renovating our lives from the inside out. So church, I want you to take a look at your own life this morning, at your own character. Which of these virtues are present in your life? Because that is evidence of God's transforming power in your life. And we need to praise God that he's working in you. But beyond self-examination, do you see these virtues in someone else's life? Maybe someone in your gospel triplet, someone in your GC. Why don't you encourage that person today? Let them know that you see evidence of compassion or kindness in their life, evidence that God is working in them. But on the flip side, are there any of these virtues that are not present in your life or that are underdeveloped? How are your habits contributing to your character? Paul urges us to put on this new wardrobe, to live out our identity in Christ. And on top of these five virtues, in verse 14, Paul tells the Colossians to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I love the way that the message 
the, the version of the Bible, the message describes this. Uh, it says, and regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. If all the other virtues are our undergarments, love is like an outer coat that we put on over all of them, which encompasses all the rest. Paul describes love as the binding agent. It's like the sinews in our body that connect our muscles to our bones. Love is the glue that holds us together. Have you ever baked a cake and forgot to put the eggs in? Egg is a binding agent, and if you forget it, then the cake will be floury and crumbly. You need the egg for the cake to maintain its integrity and hold together. In the same way, love binds everything together. It directs and empowers all these other virtues. Without love, they're nothing. Now, did you notice that for all of these virtues, they're all directed towards other people? They all presume community. You can't be compassionate or kind or humble or meek or patient unless you're in other people's lives. There's no need for love if there's no body to love. As we clothe ourselves with these virtues, we're fostering community. And that's what we're on about at Anchor, isn't it? We want to be a church that is in community, on mission for Jesus. And this is the wardrobe that we need to put on. We need to have a new character as God's people, a character of love. But we also have a new command. These virtues, while they presume community, they also assume that people aren't easy to love. There's no need for patience if there aren't people that test your patience. Even though we've been united as one body, our differences can still divide us, can't they? They can cause tension and conflict. Does anyone know the movie Remember the Titans? I love sports movies. Um, It's a a football movie set in the 1970s in America, a high school in Virginia, uh, and it's at the stage in history where there's racial integration in the high school. So before this point, you know, you had one school for the black kids, one school for the white kids, but then they integrate the schools. And all the black students, all the white students are are in class together. And as part of this racial integration process, they replace the white football coach with a black coach, Denzel. And you can just imagine the tensions that arise when these white kids and black kids, so used to segregation, are forced to play together on the same team. Whenever you throw two sinners together in close proximity. You're going to get tension and conflict. But this is exacerbated the greater the differences. So what happens in the church? When you throw people together in a really intimate environment, people from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural and religious backgrounds, different genders, different sexual orientations, different careers and pay grades. We've got people here who are executives. We've got people here who are unemployed. Not to mention just everyday kind of differences in interests and personalities and opinions. There is great potential here for tension, isn't there? For division and conflict. You know, so often when we're faced with conflict, we either have a fight or flight reflex. We want to escape or we want to attack. We want to withdraw or we act out aggressively. But how does Paul want us to respond to conflict? Have a look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So there's two instructions here from Paul. First, bear with one another. Another way of saying this might be put up with each other. Where, where possible, overlook small, minor offences. Let little things go through to the keeper. Don't overreact when someone turns up late to GC or gospel triplet. Don't overreact and be irritated when there's that guy who's just so perfectionistic that he corrects every little thing that you do. This isn't about just putting up with one another through gritted teeth. It's about having a culture of grace, assuming the best of people, responding to difference and potential irritation with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love. Now, this also isn't just about avoiding conflict. You know, for a number of these things, these might be potential coaching moments. You know, if someone is perpetually late, then that potentially is a character flaw that they're not even aware of. And that might be an opportunity for them, for you to help them grow in self-awareness and to think about how their actions are impacting other people. What this is, though, is it's realising that the little things, sometimes it's better to be wronged than to start a fight. I love the way that Proverbs 17 puts it. The start of a quarrel is like a leak in a dam. So stop before it bursts. There's little wisdom in bursting a dam over small, petty differences and inconveniences. It's better to bear with one another, isn't it? It's better to bear with one another than to start a fight. So the first thing, bear with one another. The second thing Paul says is that if we do have a complaint, if there is conflict, forgive one another. This is hard, isn't it? I want to acknowledge straight up that forgiveness is hard. When someone sinned against you, you are hurt. You feel betrayed. There's a break of trust, a break in the relationship. And this morning, you might be sitting there feeling hurt. Someone has sinned against you. And I don't want you to hear me saying, I don't want you to hear Paul saying, well, just get over it. Just move on. It doesn't matter. That isn't forgiveness. Forgiveness openly acknowledges sin. It points and says, that is wrong. That was the wrong thing to do. You hurt me. Forgiveness looks sin in the eye. It looks right into the depths of sin. It names it for what it is. It acknowledges all the pain that's been caused, all the damage that's been done. And yet in the face of all of that, it chooses to show grace and mercy. That is not easy. Forgiveness is incredibly costly. It may be free for the recipient, but forgiveness is costly for the one who gives it. Now, some of you may be familiar with Corrie ten Boom. Uh, Corrie's family were Christians living in Holland during World War II. And when Hitler invaded Holland in the 1940s, her family chose to hide Jews to protect them from the Holocaust. Eventually, her family were caught and they were taken to a concentration camp, Ravensbrück, where Corrie lost her dad, and her sister. Years later, Corrie was at a church service in Germany, and a man came up to her after the service to introduce himself. And when she saw him, she recoiled in horror because it was one of the prison guards from the concentration camp. He came up to her and he said, I was a soldier at Ravensbrück, 
And after the war, I became a Christian and God forgave me. He extended his hand to her. Will you forgive me? Now, Corrie tells this story and she says that she felt no emotion of forgiveness. She had a thousand reasons to hate this guy. But at the same time, she knew how much God had forgiven her in Christ. And so she extended her hand towards the man and said, I forgive you. Forgiveness costs. When you forgive someone, you're not ignoring the debt. Rather, you're absorbing it into yourself. Forgiveness requires the cost of suffering. Corrie had to absorb the pain, the hurt, the evil done to her in order to forgive this man. And this is exactly what Jesus did for you at the cross. We owed a debt to God that we could not pay. And God can't do some creative accounting and just make our debt disappear. Someone's got to pay it. Who's going to pay it? Who's going to pay our debt? Jesus steps in for us and cancels our debt at the cross. He nails it to the cross so that we can be forgiven and have peace with God. You see, it's the gospel that establishes the pattern and the possibility of forgiveness. Just as we have been forgiven, so great a debt by God, we are also to forgive one another. And when you truly forgive someone, it means that the matter is over. So don't bring it up. Don't use it against them. Don't dwell on it. Don't talk to other people about it. Don't let it stand between you and the, per- the other person. In Hebrews 8, God says, I'll forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. With God, the matter is over. If we've repented of sin and asked for forgiveness, it is case closed. God doesn't bring it up. He doesn't count it against us. He doesn't condemn us. We have been justified by faith. We've been acquitted of all charges, declared innocent. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As God's people, we have a new command to forgive. And we also have a new principle that directs our hearts in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, if you want to have a healthy body, all of its parts need to be working together in peace. You might know know someone with an autoimmune disease. In an autoimmune disease, rather than your white blood cells attacking infection or bacteria or disease, the white blood cells mistake your own healthy cells for intruders and attack them. So the body starts fighting against itself, destroying itself. If we are united and healthy as the body of Christ, we need to live together in peace, not fighting against one another and destroying the body. We need to let peace rule in our hearts. Now, the word that Paul uses here, let peace rule in your heart, it's got the idea of umpiring, arbitration, making a decision. Peace is the decision-making principle, the decisive factor in any situation. Paul writes in Romans 14, he says, Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. God calls us, church, to be peacemakers. Now, we usually see conflict as a contest. There's going to be a winner and a loser, and I'm going to be on the winning team. That means that I need to beat you. But what if instead of a contest, we saw conflict as an opportunity? An opportunity to glorify God to pursue peace with one another, to build a healthy body, a healthy community. Now, our staff team last year went away 
to a peace-wise training day that taught us some of the principles of personal peacemaking. And that's been really helpful for us personally and also in creating a healthy staff culture. And I wanted to teach you the conflict resolution framework that they taught us so that together as a church we can pursue peace. Helpfully, it has four Gs. It uses alliteration, and these are the four steps that we'll talk through. So first, glorify God. Second, get the log out of, my own, out of your own eye. Third, gently restore. Fourth, go and be, be reconciled. Now, usually when we're thinking about conflict, our first instinct, that person's wronged me. I'm going to go and talk to them and tell them everything that they've done wrong. But notice, before we get to talking to the other person in this process, there's two steps. So the first step is to glorify God. It's committing the whole situation to him and thinking, how in this situation can I please and honour God? Now, if that was your control, if that was your goal in this situation, doesn't that just change your whole approach? The first thing we do is glorify God. The second thing we do before we go to the other person is we look at ourselves Get the log out of my own eye. How can I show Jesus' work in me? By taking responsibility for my own contribution to this conflict. We need to take time to pray and search our own hearts to think about what have I done to wrong this other person? What's my contribution in this conflict? And to take responsibility for that. And it's only then that we can go to the other person. And notice how this process describes the third step. It's not going to the other person to beat them down and tell them what they've done wrong. How does it describe it? Gently restore the other person. How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? And even as you do this, you've got to go and acknowledge the things that you're responsible for. Use I statements rather than you statements. Tell them how you feel and what you have done in this conflict rather than just throwing out accusations. Avoid making excuses and using but. Try and understand where they're coming from and their, under, and their perspective. But then the process doesn't finish there. It's not enough just to get our baggage out in the open. We've got to deal with it. We've got to be reconciled. Go and be reconciled to one another. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? God, me, you, us, reconciled. So church, are you having conflict with someone at the moment? Maybe you're ignoring someone and it just hurts to be in the same room as them. You can't even look them in the eye. It just seems easier to bury the issue and forget about it. Or maybe you're avoiding community entirely because of conflict. Church, we cannot just ignore our issues and hope they'll go away. We need to pursue peace. We need to learn to forgive one another because we're part of a family. When Catherine and I fight, we don't go and find a new family. We're committed to one another. We've got to resolve our conflict. As a family, as a church, we are, we're going to spend eternity together. This life is learning to get along now so that we can live together in peace for eternity. Conflict is a normal part of our lives. If you're in relationships, if you're going to have conflict. If you're in community, you're going to have conflict, and that's okay. What matters is how we respond to conflict. 
And I want to encourage you, church, to take a step towards reconciliation. Maybe use this framework. If you're in a conflict right now, think about how, what would it look like for me to use this framework to approach reconciliation. Maybe you want to note this down and when you're having conflict at work or conflict in your marriage. Pull this out again and think, what would it look like for me to pursue peace and reconciliation in this situation? Conflict resolution can be hard, but the results of peace and reconciliation, they're worth it. So as God's people with a new identity in Christ, we've got a new principle that directs our hearts. We pursue peace. All right, we also have a new diet in verse 16. Let's have a look. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul wants the gospel to dwell among us richly. It's not a temporary visitor, but a permanent resident. The gospel needs to find a home in our lives and in our community. The word of Christ needs to be at the centre of our life together. And not in a superficial way, but in a deep, rich, transformative way. What would this look like? Well, Paul gives us three instructions. First, we are to teach one another. Now, we don't just have one teacher on Sundays from on stage. We all have the responsibility of teaching the gospel to one another. The gospel needs to permeate our everyday community. We need to be fluent in the, in the gospel so it saturates our everyday conversations, so that the good news about Jesus naturally bubbles up from our hearts to our tongue. We need to share with one another. Why don't you, church, share with one another what you're reading in the Bible, what God is speaking to you through his, his word, how he is changing you, how you're being convicted of sin. Why don't you form a gospel triplet to discover God's grace even more deeply? If the gospel is dwelling in us richly, it will echo out into our words and actions as we teach one another. The second thing he says is admonish one another. Another way of saying this is warn one another. Now, do we take this seriously? You know, we like the idea of teaching one another, inspiring one another with the good news of grace, but do we care for one another so much that we would be willing to warn each other of the dangers of wandering from the Lord, to call out sin in one another's lives, to rebuke one another. You know, we are shepherds over one another's souls. And a shepherd doesn't just feed his sheep. A shepherd protects his sheep from enemies, both within and without. You know, he wards off predators, and then you know, he cuts the dag off the sheep's bum so that it avoids fly strike. He's got to look after his sheep. And we need to see that we are responsible for one another, church. I am my brother's keeper. Now, a public rebuke over morning tea, that's probably not the most appropriate way to do this. Gospel triplets is, is a great way to admonish one another, to warn one another as we confess our sin, as we're vulnerable with one another and bring our sin into the light and push each other towards Jesus. The third thing Paul tells us is to sing. You know, I'm so thankful for our worship team and how they lead us every Sunday to, to worship God and to sing his praises. Aren't we so blessed to have such an amazing worship ministry? And I really want to honour them and thank them for the hard work that they put in and the amazing job that they do on Sundays to lead us in worship. Notice two things that Paul tells us about singing. First, we sing to God. 
Singing is great for community as well. You know, we encourage one another and, it, and it's, it's really encouraging seeing people worship God together. But singing is primarily directed to God as worship. We worship him for who he is and what he has done for us. He is worthy of praise. The second thing is that Paul wants us to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now, this isn't something that we manufacture, but the gospel produces thankfulness in us. We are a thankful people because we have so much to be thankful for. As Christians, we sing with passion like Jesus is really alive and my sins are really forgiven. And we've got a great opportunity to do this soon, don't we, church? To sing with thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord for all he has done for us. As God's people with a new identity in Christ, we have a new diet, the word of Christ, the gospel. And finally, we have a new purpose in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul zooms out here as far as you can go, from the specifics of community life to all of life. Whatever we do in all of life, it's all for Jesus. This echoes what he said earlier, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We are to experience all of life as worship, not just our Sunday gatherings. It's all for him. That is my purpose in life. That is your purpose in life. That is our purpose in life as the church, as the people of God. It is all for him. So what have we seen in our new wardrobe? We have a new identity in Christ, a new character, love, a new command to forgive one another, a new principle that directs our hearts, peace, a new diet, the gospel, the word of Christ, and a new purpose. All of life is for Christ. We need to put on this brand new wardrobe that fits our new identity. Now imagine what a community like this would look like. Imagine a community of love where people build one another up rather than tearing each other down, where they genuinely care for each other in practical ways. Where you know we're looking out for the lonely and the hurting, where we're sharing one another's lives deeply. Imagine a community of grace where we assume the best of people where we, we celebrate each other's wins and successes rather than being jealous, where we overlook minor offences, where it's okay to not be okay, where there is more, more than enough forgiveness to go around, where we acknowledge our sin and mistakes, but we fail forward, seeking to learn from them and to grow. Imagine a community of peace where we value unity above personal preference, where, where we resolve conflicts quickly, where all backgrounds and all walks of life are welcome, where we deal with differences constructively, where energy is put into our mission rather than conflict sucking it dry, where relationships and communities are strengthened rather than torn apart, where our peace and reconciliation is a wonderful witness to the gospel. Does this sound like a community you want to be part of? Yeah? This is the kind of community that the gospel creates and makes possible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The Christian community is not an ideal that we have to realize, but a reality created by God in which we may participate. Isn't that good? Let me read that again. The Christian community is not an ideal that we have to realize, but a reality created by God in which we may participate. And, and this is the kind of community that we're starting to see here at Anchor. Praise God. We would love you to join us in putting on this new wardrobe and participating in God's vision for his church. 
we come now to a time of worship. We get to put this into practice and sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God that the gospel has created the church, that we are the people of God, that we have a new identity in Christ, that we have been forgiven our debts by God. Don't we have good reason to sing? We get to sing now together and we also get to remember the Lord's death for us through the Lord's Supper. Down the front and up the back, there's bread and juice where we remember that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and have peace with God. If you're having conflict with someone at the moment, if you're struggling, if you're struggling even to look someone in the eye, in the eye then maybe the best next step for you is to go up the back and get prayer uh, with our prayer team. There'll be people up the back during worship and after our gathering and they would love to pray for you. Um, as our band comes forward now, I'm going to pray for us and we'll stand and worship Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so, so much for your grace and your goodness uh, that you have forgiven us through your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have peace through your blood shed on the cross. And we ask that you might reconcile us to one another. Uh, pray particularly for those who are experiencing pain and conflict now. Father, please help them to understand the forgiveness that, that they have with you. Uh, and please help us to learn to pursue peace and to forgive one another just like you have forgiven us. Father, please shape us into a community of love and grace and peace so that people might see Jesus here in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we live. Father, in all that we do, it's all for you. That is our purpose in life. All of life is for you. And so we stand now and we worship you for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.